Book One, Chapter Seventeen of Off on a Comet. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Off on a Comet by Jules Verne. Translated by Anonymous. Book One, Chapter Seventeen A Second Enigma. Upon re embarking, the bewildered explorers began to discuss the question whether it would not now be desirable to make their way back to Gorby Island, which was apparently the only spot in their new world from which they could hope to derive their future sustenance. Captain Servadac tried to console himself with the reflection that Gorby Island was, after all, a fragment of a French colony, and as such almost like a bit of his dear France, and the plan of returning thither was on the point of being adopted, when Lieutenant Procope remarked that they ought to remember that they had not hitherto made an entire circuit of the new shores of the sea on which they were sailing. We have, he said, neither investigated the northern shore from the site of Cape Antibe to the strait that brought us to Gibraltar, nor have we followed the southern shore that stretches from the strait to the Gulf of Cape. It is the old coast, and not the new, that we have been tracing. As yet, we cannot say positively that there is no outlet to the south. As yet, we cannot assert that no oasis of the African desert has escaped the catastrophe. Perhaps, even here in the north, we may find that Italy and Sicily and the larger islands of the Mediterranean may still maintain their existence. I entirely concur with you, said Count Timoshev. I quite think we ought to make our survey of the confines of this new basin as complete as possible before we withdraw. Servadac, although he acknowledged the justness of these observations, could not help pleading that the explorations might be deferred until after a visit had been paid to Gorby Island. Depend on it, Captain, you are mistaken, replied the lieutenant. The right thing to do is to use the Doberna while she is available. Available? What do you mean? asked the Count, somewhat taken by surprise. I mean, said Procope, that the farther this Gallia of ours recedes from the sun, the lower the temperature will fall. It is likely enough, I think, that before long the sea will be frozen over, and navigation will be impossible. Already you have learned something of the difficulties of traversing a field of ice, and I am sure, therefore, you will acquiesce in my wish to continue our explorations while the water is still open. No doubt you are right, Lieutenant, said the Count, we will continue our search while we can for some remaining fragment of Europe. Who shall tell whether we may not meet with some more survivors from the catastrophe, to whom it might be in our power to afford assistance, before we go into our winter quarters? Generous and altogether unselfish as this sentiment really was, it was obvious to the general interest that they should become acquainted, and if possible establish friendly relations, with any human inhabitant who might be sharing their own strange destiny in being rolled away upon a new planet into the infinitude of space. All difference of race, all distinction of nationality, must be merged into the one thought that, few as they were, they were the sole surviving representatives of a world which it seemed exceedingly improbable that they would ever see again, and common sense dictated that they were bound to direct all their energies to ensure that their asteroids should at least have a united and sympathizing population. It was on the 25th of February that the yacht left the little creek in which she had taken refuge, and setting off at full steam eastwards, she continued her way along the northern shore. 
A brisk breeze tended to increase the keenness of the temperature, the thermometer being, on average, about two degrees below zero. Salt water freezes only at a lower temperature than fresh. The course of the Diburna was therefore unimpeded by ice, but it could not be concealed that there was the greatest necessity to maintain the utmost possible speed. The nights continued lovely. The chilled condition of the atmosphere prevented the formation of clouds. The constellations gleamed forth with unsullied luster, and, much as Lieutenant Procope, from nautical considerations, might regret the absence of the moon, he could not do otherwise than own that the magnificent nights of Gallia were such as must awaken the enthusiasm of an astronomer. And, as if to compensate for the loss of the moonlight, the heavens were illuminated by a superb shower of falling stars, far exceeding, both in number and in brilliancy, the phenomena which are commonly distinguished as the August and November meteors. In fact, Gallia was passing through that meteoric ring which is known to lie exterior to the Earth's orbit, but almost concentric with it. The rocky coast, its metallic surface reflecting the glow of the dazzling luminaries, appeared literally stippled with light, whilst the sea, as though spattered with burning hailstones, shone with a phosphorescence that was perfectly splendid. So great, however, was the speed at which Gallia was receding from the sun, that this meteoric storm lasted scarcely more than four and twenty hours. The next day the direct progress of the Diburna was arrested by a long projection of land, which obliged her to turn southwards, until she reached what formerly would have been the southern extremity of Corsica. Of this, however, there was no trace. The Strait of Bonifacio had been replaced by a vast expanse of water, which had at first all the appearance of being utterly desert, but on the following morning the explorers unexpectedly sighted a little island, which, unless it should prove, as was only too likely, to be of recent origin, they concluded, from its situation, must be a portion of the northernmost territory of Sardinia. The Diburna approached the land as nearly as was prudent. The boat was lowered, and in a few minutes the Count and Servadac had landed upon the islet, which was a mere plot of meadowland, not much more than two acres in extent, dotted here and there with a few myrtle bushes and lentisks, interspersed with some ancient olives. Having ascertained, as they imagined, that the spot was devoid of living creature, they were on the point of returning to their boat, when their attention was arrested by a faint bleeding, and immediately afterwards a solitary she-goat came bounding towards the shore. The creature had dark, almost black hair, and small curved horns, and was a specimen of that domestic breed which, with considerable justice, has gained for itself the title of the poor man's cow. So far from being alarmed at the presence of strangers, the goat ran nimbly toward them, and then, by its movements and plaintive cries, seemed to be enticing them to follow it. Come, said Servadac, let us see where it will lead us. It is more than probable it is not alone. The Count agreed, and the animal, as if comprehending what was said, trotted on gently for about a hundred paces, and stopped in front of a kind of cave or burrow that was half concealed by a grove of lentisks. Here a little girl, seven or eight years of age, with rich brown hair and lustrous dark eyes, beautiful as one of Marillo's angels, was peeping shyly through the branches apparently discovering nothing in the aspect of the strangers to excite her apprehensions the child suddenly gained confidence darted forwards with outstretched hands and in a voice 
soft and melodious as the language which she spoke, said in Italian, I like you. You will not hurt me, will you? Hurt you, my child? answered Servadac. No, indeed. We will be your friends. We will take care of you. After a few moments' scrutiny of the pretty maiden, he added, Tell us your name, little one. Nina, was the child's reply. Well, then, Nina, can you tell us where we are? At Madalena, I think, said the little girl. At least, I know I was there when that dreadful shock came and altered everything. The Count knew that Madalena was close to Caprera, to the north of Sardinia, which had entirely disappeared in the disaster. By dint of a series of questions, he gained from the child a very intelligent account of her experiences. She told him that she had no parents, and had been employed in taking care of a flock of goats belonging to one of the landowners, when one day, all of a sudden, everything around her, except this little piece of land, had been swallowed up, and that she and Marzi, her pet goat, had been left quite alone. She went on to say that at first she had been very frightened, but when she found that the earth did not shake any more, she had thanked the great God, and had soon made herself very happy living with Marzi. She had enough food, she said, and had been waiting for a boat to fetch her, and now a boat had come and she was quite ready to go away. Only they must let her goat go with her. They would both like so much to get back to the old farm. Here, at least, is one nice little inhabitant of Gallia, said Captain Servadac, as he caressed the child and conducted her to the boat. Half an hour later, both Nina and Marzi were safely quartered on board the yacht. It is needless to say that they received the heartiest of welcomes. The Russian sailors, ever superstitious, seemed almost to regard the coming of the child as the appearance of an angel, and, incredible as it may seem, more than one of them wondered whether she had wings, and amongst themselves they commonly referred to her as the little Madonna. Soon out of sight of Madalena, the Diburna for some hours held a southeasterly course along the shore, which here was fifty leagues in advance of the former coastline of Italy, demonstrating that a new continent must have been formed, substituted as it were for the old peninsula, of which not a vestige could be identified. At a latitude corresponding with the latitude of Rome, the sea took the form of a deep gulf, extending back far beyond the site of the Eternal City the coast making a wide sweep round to the former position of Calabria, and jutting far beyond the outline of the boot, which Italy resembles. But the beacon of Messina was not to be discerned. No trace, indeed, survived of any portion of Sicily. The very peak of Etna, eleven thousand feet as it reared itself above the level of the sea, had vanished utterly. Another sixty leagues to the south, and the Doberna sighted the entrance of the strait which had afforded her so providential a refuge from the tempest, and had conducted her to the fragmentary relic of Gibraltar. Hence to the Gulf of Cabe had already been explored, and as it was universally allowed that it was unnecessary to renew the search in that direction, the lieutenant started off in a traverse course, toward a point hitherto uninvestigated. That point was reached on the 3rd of March, and thence the coast was continually followed, as it led through what had been Tunis, across the province of Constantine, away to the oasis of Zeban, where, taking a sharp turn, it first reached a latitude of thirty-two degrees, and then returned again, thus forming a sort of irregular gulf, 
enclosed by the same unvarying border of mineral concrete. This colossal boundary then stretched away for nearly 150 leagues over the Sahara Desert, and, extending to the south of Gorby Island, occupied what, if Morocco had still existed, would have been its natural frontier. Adapting her course to these deviations of the coastline, the Doberna was steering northwards, and had barely reached the limit of the bay, when the attention of all on board was arrested by the phenomenon of a volcano, at least 3,000 feet high. Its crater was crowned with smoke, which occasionally was streaked by tongues of flame. A burning mountain, they exclaimed. Gallia, then, has some internal heat, said Servadac. And why not, Captain, rejoined the lieutenant. If our asteroid has carried with it a portion of the old Earth's atmosphere, why should it not likewise retain something of its central fire? Ah, well, said the captain, shrugging his shoulders, I dare say there is caloric enough in our little world to supply the wants of its population. Count Timoshev interrupted the silence that followed this conversation by saying, And now, gentlemen, as our course has brought us on our way once more towards Gibraltar, what do you say to our renewing our acquaintance with the Englishman? They will be interested in the result of our voyage. For my part, said Servadac, I have no desire that way. They know where to find Gorby Island. They can betake themselves thither just when they please. They have plenty of provisions. If the water freezes, a hundred and twenty leagues is no very great distance. The reception they gave us was not so cordial that we need put ourselves out of the way to repeat our visit. What you say is too true, replied the Count. I hope we shall show them better manners when they condescend to visit us. Aye, said Servadac, we must remember that we are all one people now, no longer Russian, French, or English. Nationality is extinct. I am sadly afraid, however, continued the Count, that an Englishman will be an Englishman ever. Yes, said the captain, that is always their failing. And thus all further thought of making their way again to the little garrison of Gibraltar was abandoned. But even if their spirit of courtesy had disposed them to renew their acquaintance with the British officers, there were two circumstances that just then would have rendered such a proposal very unadvisable. In the first place, Lieutenant Procope was convinced that it could not be much longer now before the sea would be entirely frozen, and, besides this, the consumption of their coal, through the speed they had maintained, had been so great that there was only too much reason to fear that fuel would fail them. Anyhow, the strictest economy was necessary, and it was accordingly resolved that the voyage should not be much prolonged. Beyond the volcanic peak, moreover, the waters seemed to expand into a boundless ocean and it might be a thing full of risk to be frozen up while the yacht was so inadequately provisioned. Taking all these things into account, it was agreed that further investigations should be deferred to a more favorable season, and that, without delay, the Doberna should return to Gorby Island. This decision was especially welcome to Hector Servadac, who, throughout the whole of the last five weeks, had been agitated by much anxious thought on account of the faithful servant he had left behind. The transit from the volcano to the island was not long, and was marked by only one noticeable incident. This was the finding of a second mysterious document, in character precisely similar to what they had found before. The writer of it was evidently engaged upon a calculation, 
and probably continued from day to day, as to the motions of the planet Gallia upon its orbit, and committing the results of his reckonings to the waves as the channel of communication. Instead of being enclosed in a telescope case, it was this time secured in a preserved meat tin, hermetically sealed, and stamped with the same initials on the wax that fastened it. The greatest care was used in opening it, and it was found to contain the following message. Gallia ab sol, a one Mars, dist, seventy-eight million L, chemin parcouru de fev a Mars, fifty-nine million L, va bene, all right, nil desperandum. Enchante. Another enigma, exclaimed Servadac, and still no intelligible signature, and no address. No clearing up of the mystery. I have no doubt, in my own mind, said the Count, that it is one of a series. It seems to me probable that they are being sent broadcast upon the sea. I wonder where the harebrained savant that writes them can be living, observed Servadac. Very likely he may have met with the fate of Aesop's abstracted astronomer, who found himself at the bottom of a well. Aye, but where is that well? demanded the captain. This was a question which the Count was incapable of settling, and they could only speculate afresh as to whether the author of the riddles was dwelling upon some solitary island, or, like themselves, was navigating the waters of the new Mediterranean but they could detect nothing to guide them to a definite decision. After thoughtfully regarding the document for some time, Lieutenant Procope proceeded to observe that he believed the paper might be considered as genuine, and accordingly, taking its statements as reliable, he deduced two important conclusions. First, that whereas, in the month of January, the distance traveled by the planet, hypothetically called Gallia, had been recorded as 82 million leagues, the distance traveled in February was only 59 million leagues, a difference of 23 million leagues in one month. Secondly, that the distance of the planet from the sun, which on the 15th of February had been 59 million leagues, was on the 1st of March 78 million leagues, an increase of 19 million leagues in a fortnight. Thus, in proportion as Gallia receded from the sun, so did the rate of speed diminish by which she traveled along her orbit facts to be observed in perfect conformity with the known laws of celestial mechanism. "'And your inference?' asked the Count. "'My inference,' replied the lieutenant, "'is a confirmation of my surmise that we are following an orbit decidedly elliptical, although we have not yet the material to determine its eccentricity. "'As the writer adheres to the appellation of Gallia, "'do you not think,' asked the Count, "'that we might call these new waters the Gallian Sea?' There is no reason to the contrary, Count, replied the lieutenant, and as such I will insert it upon my new chart. Our friend, said Servadac, seems to be more and more gratified with the condition of things. Not only has he adopted our motto, Nil Desperandum, but see how enthusiastically he has wound up with his Enchante. The conversation dropped. A few hours later, the man on watch announced that Gorby Island was in sight. End of Book One, Chapter Seventeen